Welcome back to In the Belly of the Beast. Uh, we're excited that you are listening again, and we have our crew back together in, in the same space. Uh, my name's Amy Finnegan. I teach Justice and Peace Studies at the University of St. Thomas, and I am connected to the American Culture and Difference Program. Hi, I'm Kanishka Chowdhury. I teach in the English department, and I direct the American Culture and Difference Program. It's great to be back here with everyone again. Hi, my name is Todd Norris. I also teach in the English department and I'm part of the American Culture and Difference faculty as well. And yeah, we haven't recorded for a couple of months, so it's great to be back recording a show again. And I'm Ryan Sickleco, and I actually have a new position. Yay! Woohoo! <laughs> I'm no longer, sadly, at the University of St. Thomas in the theology department. I am now at a new institution in the Twin Cities called the United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. And I currently serve as the director of a new center called the Leadership Center for Social Justice that seeks to equip and inspire and empower uh, congregational pastors and other faith leaders to do social justice ministry in a contextual, faithful, and relational way. So I'm really excited to be uh, with you, though, back in the studio. I will continue to be part of this podcast. How could I not be? But I am... This is your idea in the first place, right? <laughs> Yeah, but I'm in a new position now, so it'll be it'll be fun to, to continue to explore the ideas with you within this new context. So we have, you know, amongst the four of us, we have friendships. We have various partnerships that have endured for many years. But one of the themes that, but in terms of this coherence of this, like the four of us in and the focus that we've had most recently, one of the themes that originally brought us together was a framework of racial capitalism. And so today's episode of In the Belly of the Beast is going to center racial capitalism. In many ways, it was a really formative and ongoing conversation that has been important to each of us in our work in higher education, in which we are deeply critical of the academy, of the university, of institutions, of the beast, if you will. And we are also participating in it. So we are we are within it as well. So in terms of what we what we mean when we when we say racial capitalism, there's a lot of work that's been put for us to kind of grapple with. Um, some of us really appreciate Ruth Wilson Gilmore's notion that capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it as sort of a core understanding of what races of racial capitalism is. So I'll say that again. Capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it. And I know for myself, I've really appreciated Ruha Benjamin's commentary that racism produces something of value for some as a way to kind of get my mind to orient towards like what is racial capitalism. But I but I think I'd also like to invite Kanishka to kind of lay some foundation for us as well about what is what do we mean when we're talking about racial capitalism? Yeah, and I, I, I'd be happy to do so, but with one sort of qualification, and that is I think as with any kind of term or concept, uh, racial capitalism is now everywhere, uh, not just in academia, but you see it uh, in, in other areas as well. You see it in mainstream journalism, you see the phrase pop up in the New York Times, which is always a good or a bad sign, depending on how you want to look at that. And so I think we, we should use that term with caution, because I think uh, at some level it can be seen in a very sort of transparent, obvious way 
uh, as an interconnection between race and the forces of capital. But I think there's a long tradition, of course, going back uh, in, 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 and it hasn't just come up, you know, recently or even in uh, Cedric Robinson's 1983 book, which, you know, has been sort of resurrected. But fundamentally, you know, it's a, it's a world system that has sort of been in place ever since, you know, the Americas were colonized. Um, and the transatlantic slave trade began, uh, and, and the idea that racialized exploitation and the accumulation of capital are mutually constitutive in the sense that each informs the other, that the way of producing value is connected to a certain hierarchy, and that hierarchy enables the production of that value. So it's it's a mutually constitutive process. And, and what we have to, I guess, w- understand in our own work is how those two can be balanced and understood. And, and obviously there are many, many people, Stuart Hall being you know one of the more famous ones who've, who've done excellent work in, in this area. But as, you know, going back to Amy's point, and that is how does this concept inform not just how we teach, but how we see our own participation within the system, that is to say, how do we teach against the grain of this ideology of the system, do good productive work, but also be aware that in some ways we are replicating the system, we are reproducing the system, um, and, and that's a necessary tension that we have to somehow work through. And I think all of us come at it at different ways depending on our own disciplinary training, our own interests, our own political orientation, our subject positions so on and so forth. So I'll just leave it at that for the time being. Um, but I basically wanted to conf- to say that it is a term that should be used, but also used with a certain degree of nuance and historically understood, uh, not as something that has just suddenly been <laughs> discovered. Uh, it's, it's, it has a long history and, and we should attend to that history. Can I ask you a question real quick? Sure. Uh, so do you think that... Um the term racial capitalism is on uh, a course to sort of be either co-opted or sort of emptied of meaning the way that anti-racism or some of these other terms that have been associated with, you know, this kind of work have been? One thing I'll say that that the the idea that people are actually talking about capitalism is a good thing because it is always the sort of underbelly of everything, but no one wants to talk about it, because the whole ideology of the free market system is that capitalism is actually just the normal normal way to do things. So if we name it, I think it's always going to be a good thing, because then we can look at the processes that sort of make this thing work, uh, and why is it hidden from us. Uh, but having said that, I agree with you. I think this is, like anything else, this too can be co-opted. You know, like third-wave feminism can be co-opted, Racial capitalism can be co-opted. LGBT politics can be co-opted. Everything is potentially, this is the genius of capital, right? Everything is, co- is can be turned into a commodity. And I don't mean that as a compliment in, in case people think I'm using the word genius in a, in a good way. So yeah, I think, I think that's what I mean. I think we have to be careful about it. So, um, so here we are, it's 2022, and we're well into the throngs of racial capitalism, right? And we talk... Now, we use the word neoliberalism often to describe this iteration of capitalism that's focused on free markets, kind of trumping everything, deregulation, liberalization, privatization. 
And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about how paying attention to the political economy, like the form of capitalism that we're in today, how that impacts not only how racism operates, but also how anti-racism shows up. So why, why is it important? Why do we think it's important? And I think we all have lots of feelings about this. Why is it important for us to bring in the conditions of capitalism into our analysis when we, when we think about anti-racism today? Who wants to start? <laughs> I know you want to start. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we have to be paying attention to how material conditions shape and reshape racisms in historically specific ways, in ways that interact, they're interactive. So by historically specific, I don't mean in isolated ways, that racism is uh, inter- uh, relational and it's geographically connected and that new racisms and the way that racism takes shape is often unexpected and is deeply affected by what's happening in the world, what's happening in the economy, what's happening politically and geopolitically, what's happening socially, what's happening in response to resistance to racism and resistance to extractivism, extractive economies. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's complex. I think that... Um, There is an understanding of racism that is current today. I think a common sense understanding of racism that sort of assumes that racism is about the the, the recognition of someone of a different race, right, as as inferior, as fitting a certain stereotype, as, right, and so there's a kind of this idea that racism is about bias, individual bias. Prejudice. Prejudice against discrimination against that person of a different race, right? And I think that that's not a very helpful understanding of what racism is because it presumes the reality of something called race that's sort of independent of racism. So I think that we have to understand racism historically and in and, and in relation to material conditions, and that includes political economy, that includes you know legal regimes and the specificity of particular locations. And I think the the piece that's really important within the context of neoliberalism is that there's a kind of mystification. I mean, racism, I think, is always mystifying or seems to have a mystifying dimension to it, historically speaking. I don't like using the language of always when it comes to racism, because I think we, we there's a presentism that comes with thinking about racism and race that, that tends to eternalize and we lose track quickly of historical specificity. But I think there's something, especially the case with neoliberalism, that seems to create a mystification around how racism functions. And it's very individualizing, right, because of the pull with the neoliberalism. And these institutions that we work within, that we live within, that sort of run the world, none of them want to be racist. Right? There's a kind of commonsensical kind of moralism built into kind of what's our current moment, right? Where no one wants to be a racist called a racist. And so, so there's this assumption that we're all working to be anti-racist. And yeah, I think, I think that's what I have to say right now. Other people will jump in. But. You mean that nobody wants to, wants to be called a racist? Do you, re- do you mean that nobody wants to be a racist? Because it seems to me that um, one thing that, you know, the sort of structural racism does is sort of as you said, sort of cloaks racism as a kind of structural reality so that you don't even believe that you're 
racist, right? Or institutions. Don't, like that was one of the, I'm sort of thinking a lot about, I don't know, let's say five or six years ago when, you know, in our case, in our institution, we were sort of trying to confront these issues for, I think like the first time in a really significant way. And we were, we were basically like the work that we were doing was basically to try to, to get the institution to sort of understand that it was racist. And what it was saying collectively was like, no, no, I'm, no, we're not, <laughs> you know, like that was the sort of resistance, you know. So I wonder if, you know, that idea about, um, I feel there's a, uh, <laughs> there's a lawnmower in the background. <laughs> Sounds like a battleship coming in. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can hear this on, on the recording, but that's why I paused because there's a lawnmower in the background, which may come back uh, occasionally. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it's true, I think that you hear, especially in this moment, that people don't want to be called racist, mainly because that's become a bad thing now. I mean, 50, 60 years ago, there are plenty of people, if you called them racist, wouldn't care. <laughs> like that, you know, so I wondered, can you talk more about, about what that, am I right about what I'm saying? Or did I just confuse everything? No, I think, I think I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. I, I think that there's a kind of, yeah, I think there's a kind of moralism going on, a deep, deep moralism around these questions. Um, and I think that, that, you know, books like White Fragility and, you know, the kind of, um, the, the kind of texts that have been made popular around, you know, making it about people's feelings, making it about people's... Now, of course, racism affects individual people, so it does have consequences, and that's part of it, right? I think that that's, that's the attraction to understanding racism in precisely that way, because it has these individual effects. So then seeing it then as a matter of individual responsibility, as opposed to asking deeper questions about, you know, the last 500 years of colonialism, how the role that, that the notion of race has played in the development of capitalism how racial differentiation, uh, the role that that plays in the formation of nation states, borders, immigration regimes, prisons, criminalization, on and on and on, right? It keeps us from asking those questions. I think that's the trouble, that's, that's the challenge that we face as educators, but also educators working with the institution like uh, St. Thomas or other institutions that say, you know, hey, we are pro-Black Lives Matter, right? We uh, we started a racial justice initiative, right? We are doing the work. And it's like, well, it's great that you're doing the work, but have you thought about how the work is to be done? Or are we just rushing into doing the work in a way that's not super reflect reflexive about the kind of the, the kind of history that we're talking about? You know, racism isn't just this sort of, you know, this sort of like blemish that needs to be removed, right? I mean, racism is deeply connected to these, 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 these historical formations that are still very much with us that we've been talking about on the show. Mm -hmm. And are we, are we thinking, or and any of us, I'm just wondering, like, we're saying that maybe neoliberalism, like the, the conditions of capitalism that have really, like, really individualized us, right? Like it's, it's made us kind of move from like thinking about structures to thinking about individuals. Then we are, we, we think about racism. Like that's part of why we might think of racism and our anti-racist efforts as very individual. Like I'm going to learn all the microaggressions that I shouldn't use. And I'm going to be very conscious about how I use them and that is, or how, how I, the language I use. And therefore I am anti-racist and I don't have to question how I'm part of an institution that is like shackling people with student debt. Or I know you've given an example recently, right? Where people are like reading a book about whiteness 
in a white majority space. Meanwhile, like 10 miles down the road, there's a prison and there's no there's no connection. Like we're doing our anti-racism work here, reading this book, learning about how we can be how we can disembody whiteness. And then there's, we, we don't look at prisons as a racial injustice. Many of us don't. And so I'm, I'm, I'm asking, so or I'm kind of trying to put it together, is, is neoliberalism part of why that's happening? Because we're thinking about it very individually and we're not looking at the broader kind of social forces. Yeah, I mean, neoliberalism is an interesting, again, it's another term that has been sort of become sort of our common <laughs> vocabulary, right? Which is a sort of a stand, stand, stands for so many things. I'd rather just talk about capitalism, frankly, because capitalism, I mean, the job of what our rulers want to do is to atomize us, to fragment us from each other and from our realities. So we don't see these connections. The point is not to see the connection between gentrification and the carceral economy, right? And yet they're related, right? We can talk about healthcare as being one of the biggest uh, demonstrations of this in the last two years, right? Who were the ones who suffered the most during the pandemic and why? But one thing, I, I mean, I really want to say, and this goes back to, to Rice's point about presentism and history, is that as educators, we are part of an intellectual heritage that is completely immersed in white supremacist, racist ideologies, right? And so the, another catchword that's being used a lot now is to decolonize, okay, right? Let's decolonize X, let's decolonize Y. Now, this is not the way <laughs> Kruma and Cabral and, you know, Fano talked about decolonization. If we really are, have to decolonize, then yeah, not only is it the curriculum and this intellectual heritage, but it is to decolonize from those systems which, from which we are benefiting. Where is higher education getting its millions of dollars from? You know, Harvard's billion dollar endowment. What is creating that wealth? right? However much you have the, some of the best critical race scholars at Harvard, are you also having a system which reproduces this, this whole structure? So, so I think this is all interrelated. I, I mean, it's not just about neoliberalism and individualism. I think it's about the deep roots of an economic system that are not just rooted in the way we did business, but our intellectual genealogy. You know, you can't escape from it. Whatever department you are in, in academia has a <laughs> massive history of this from art history to anthropology to political science to theology to english to name it and and what are we doing about that well i think we're you know i think what what universities are trying to do right what we hear we hear happening here is attempts to diversify the curriculum perhaps or at least diversify representation hiring new faculty of color is a, a stated goal and I guess I'm wondering about what y'all think of, of those efforts, some of the efforts that have been made to sort of address, um, because I think there is an acknowledgement, at least, you know, at a surface level of the fact that, well, why is the theology department, you know, majority white? Why is, why are most of the departments at the University of St. Thomas and other universities across the U.S. majority white? What, you know, and, and that that's seen as a problem that needs to be changed. That, to me, seems to be the extent of the analysis or examination of like, okay, you know, do we ever ask the question of, do we actually need to fundamentally change the curriculum mm -hmm. and not just of individual departments, but across the university as such? So, I, I mean, I guess I'm open to actually ideas about decolonizing the curriculum because I know in my discipline, it is desperately needed and needed not just in a, you know, in the buzzword sense of decolonization, 
right? But we really need to think critically of the ways that the categories, the subfields, the way that the discipline has been formed and shaped and developed over the years is deeply embedded in colonial systems and colonial governance, and it shares that history, right? Well, I mean, so I'm, I'm thinking about what Kanishka started off his last comment with, is, you know, that we, we don't want to talk about capitalism and also, also thinking about what you say, Rai, and it makes me sort of think about pushing our response to that question even further. I mean, why stop at um, decolonializing the curriculum? Like, why not ask the question of fundamentally, what is a university? Why not ask fundamentally, what is what is education? Look, on, you know, this is a sort of a bind that we get in because we are educators, because we were, I mean, I work at a university, I get paid by a university. That puts me, you know, sort of squarely in upper middle class or upper class sort of wealth kind of place in society. So my survival of in a certain kind of way of living depends on the university itself, right? And so every time I ask a question like, why don't we just burn it down and start something else that is actually better for accomplishing the ends that we are actually talking about accomplishing, it's very difficult to ask that question because that would mean destroying the very thing that sustains me and my family, right? And that is like, to me, the difficult thing about questioning capitalism because people are afraid of what the alternative to it would be because to a large part, people are incapable of sort of imagining a world without capitalism, right? Because it's all we've ever known. And of course, if you're an American, if you're like me and you grew up in the 80s, like your sense of what, you know, socialism is like a boogeyman <laughs> kind of thing, right? And I, you know, I've struggled with this myself personally because, you know, I'm friends with all of you, but I've been friends with Kanishka the longest. And um, Kanishka has been, <laughs> been talking to me about capitalism for almost 20 years. And, and uh, in classes, I often, I often say, <laughs> in classes, I often say to my students when I'm talking about, you know, some kind of uh, critique of capitalism, I'll be like, uh, I'm not a Marxist, but I am Marxist adjacent. Now, why, do, <laughs> why do I feel the need to, to label myself that way? And I think it is ultimately because of my own fear about, you know, sort of like, what would it mean to sort of like, fundamentally change our economics and social system in a way that would really have material um, impact on things like racial inequality and, and um, social inequality, all the things that are a problem in our society today. So, and I guess my question is like, is the university itself a part of the problem as an institution which has been built within this framework such that it it seems to me it would be impossible for it to let go of these kind of colonialist kind of um, structures of these structures of inequality simply baked into the cake. Yeah. I mean, I, I reminded of what Angela Davis says that in order to work towards a better future, we have to believe that future is possible. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, in a sense, what we do also with our students and with our colleagues uh, is the act of imagination. Right. I mean, in a, in a, so what is it? You don't sort of have guidebook uh, dummies for a better, you know, what is it called, those, that series? Anything for dummies. Anything like, dummies yeah. for a better world. I mean, <laughs> and, and then you have a lot of little bulleted points which you just follow through. Uh, it comes through struggle. It comes through education. It comes through imagination. And all of those forces uh, that you're talking about are meant to stifle those. When an 18-year-old comes in here and sees the price tag for an education, guess what? It's not just limiting in, in, in a sort of real way of what discipline that person chooses, but it stifles the imagination of what is possible. It stifles the imagination of what I can do in this world, how I can sustain myself in this world, how I will not come out of college with an enormous debt, which I'll pay off for the next 25 years of my life. 
So the system is built in, in ironically to do exactly the opposite of what we try to do as educators, which is in fact to free people to think about the future in liberating ways uh, and to imagine that what that liberation might look like. So it's an uphill, you know, it is the Sisyphean thing of pushing that rock up the hill because everything at the social level is geared to kill that act of imagination that that better world is possible, that it's idealism, that it's foolishness, that it's impractical. And, and our students hear it over and over and over again. And that logic is very hard to work against because for obvious reasons uh, <laughs> you have an economy that's built on 1.7 trillion dollars of student debt there's a reason for that right it's the same reason that people who make guns make billions of dollars in profits uh, you know things don't just exist they exist for a reason and unfortunately those are very strong and compelling structural reasons and we have to fight against them and and that's as all of us know it's, it's a very very challenging task i do think we can make dents though i guess you know i've been reading this book that's really been inspiring for me uh by robbie shilliam who teaches at johns hopkins university and i really recommend this book to y'all um it's called decolonizing politics and it's part of a, a series about decolonizing the curriculum but it's a it's about political science the field of political science and he kind of goes through in the book the different subfields of political science and sort of shows their kind of their colonial logic like how they began and then how they were shaped to sort of serve kind of colonial ends and purposes and the point is to engage with the kind of structural questions the ways that categories were shaped around certain subfields within particular times and places to justify and to to sort of animate kind of colonial understandings of of what constitutes politics and what constitutes a science called politics or political science. And then he has like, he offers like alternatives to think about, you know, uh, as, as a way into sort of the decolonizing of the, of political science. So he draws on Franz Fanon, he draws on Walter Rodney, he draws on uh, Gloria Anzaldúa as sort of, to look at sort of the alternatives within sort of um, more radical decolonizing traditions as a way to then engage and to sort of be in conversation with, to contest yeah, the kind of colonial dimensions of, of the discipline. And the point isn't, I guess my point isn't to say this is going to do all the work, but I think within our own fields, within our own disciplines, you know, we do need to think critically about what we're teaching together, about what our departments are teaching together uh, uh, as a curriculum and beginning to, you know, start breaking that down. And I think part of what American culture and difference has done at the University of St. Thomas has been to start to break down the kind of these hard disciplinary boundaries, right? To create non-disciplinary spaces, anti-disciplinary spaces, new, right? And the main threat to American culture and difference, if there is one, is that it become its own discipline. <laughs> In some ways, this is justice and peace studies too at St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. Justice and peace studies began as a kind of radical movement from below within the university, a kind of under commons moment. You know, the more that becomes institutionalized and part of the framing Right, the more it becomes co-opted, it can or has the potential to become co-opted yeah. and to be incorporated. So I, I don't know. I just am mm -hmm. sort of I don't know what I'm saying. Other than yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I want to push that kind of push against sort of the idea that we can't do anything within 
Yeah, well, context. the fugitive, right? The whole yeah, idea of the fugitive, yeah. right? Yeah, and I, don't, I, I didn't mean to suggest that we couldn't do anything, so I hope nobody heard that, you know, because I think you're right. There are things that we can do, but I just think that the question that the questions that we are willing to ask, both of ourselves and at the institution and to our students, should go further than what's comfortable, you know, in terms of the institution itself and the work that we're doing. I think what you're saying makes perfect sense, and I wanted to just sort of say that, you know, in my own field, I'm a folklorist, and it's one of the most problematic disciplines that you mentioned, you know, along with anthropology. Um, but I think some of the best work that's being done in my field right now is, you know, obviously we're a field that purported to be interested in the sort of vernacular knowledge, the knowledge of the people and the, the, the traditions of the people and what the what the people believe in uh, value, w what drives them in their um, relations with each other. And I think that was what was said for such a long time, but it was just sort of material to be sort of uh, expropriated, you know, taken from them and used for uh, commodified, right? Um, and I think now some of the most interesting and important work is really about like going and working with people in their places and basically providing them some kind of resources, whether it is intellectual resources, financial resources, whatever, for them to do work on their own that make their communities better and helps them to shape their communities in ways that they want to shape their communities, right? So that it's, it's not you going and extracting something from communities, but you going and participating in the transformation of communities with people who are doing that work already and our students need to be aware that there's work like this that's happening that can happen that it's not just about what can you get from a group of people or you know whatever um, even the education itself like we uh, there's so many students that you that you come across who are like I'm here to get what I can get out of this education and um, I understand that because it's extremely expensive and that is like a really logical way of thinking about what it means to go to college. But there, I think, are other ways that we have to impress upon our students to think about the possibility and potential for education at the, at the level of, you know, higher ed and that it might not be what you can get out of it, but it might also be how you can transform yourself and be in solidarity with other groups of people that you didn't even know existed before. I read it somewhere recently that any student who has been born this century has never lived in a system, uh, capitalist system, that has been completely functioning in a healthy way, <laughs> that they have never known it to function in a healthy way. Of course, I would argue it never has, but that's a whole different story. So whether it be climate change, uh, racial justice, uh, whether it be, um, you know, issues of, you know, all kinds of issues that surround them, tuition and uh, higher education expense, uh, the prospect of getting a job after college, they don't see the system functioning. Uh, and, and they've been sold, uh, you know, something that's saying this is the greatest system in the world and this rewards you and this will reward hard work and i think so we are dealing with 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 students who are a lot more skeptical i think about this promise and i think therefore that pushing that rock up the hill as i you know might suggest that it's, it's nothing but resistance it isn't i mean i i, I think that there is a lot of potential reception of the things we want to talk about because they're already in a way radicalized by the world they see around them, right? So there's hope there yeah, in that, absolutely. totally. Yeah. Absolutely. But there's tension too, like I feel like to bring back to like, do we need to like undo the university? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my thought is like, yes. And I have students who are like in my classes right now about to graduate and wondering what the hell job they're gonna get. 
and looking for direction. So it's like, I feel like we want to have that visionary, that visionary idea to question literally everything, right? Um, and look at how our institution really is a cog in the capitalist wheel. And also recognize that since we are in it, all of us, there are some like material constraints that people have. Like taking, I mean, if you go to school, if you go to most, most, most of us who explore higher education have to take loans to do it. And so when you graduate, the bank comes back and says, can you pay for that? And then you're like, oh crap, I got, where am I going to get the money for that? And I also need to eat and I need to pay rent. And like, I like to go biking or whatever, you know, like you, so I just think those, those tensions are real. Um, maybe I'll ask one last question. Cause we got, we're going to close here. So you know, we, we're recognizing we're critical here of the institutions. And I think, I don't know if we said this, but like we're all connected to one institution where we're working at. Did we talk about that? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> I, I think I mentioned it. Yeah. Okay. We but, all have worked at the same institution where I doesn't anymore. But he I'm in a new institution that's, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking, we're, we're broader than just critiquing the place that we're most connected right. to. But I am wondering, like, what do we hope for in terms of in terms of actions by these institutions of higher learning? Is it reasonable to expect them, you know, given the realities of capitalism today to in which we inhabit? Is it re reasonable for us to expect the radical kind of actions that we're looking for? What are we looking for? When, what do we do in the meantime? So we're not like constantly disappointed by, you know, responses to you know racism on campus being like we're gonna do better and like attend this DEI workshop for us to create a safe space in your classroom as like the primary response I don't know like yeah I, uh, I, I think I think for me I, I would love to see institutions and departments and colleges really step back and begin to recognize that there are decades and decades and decades of scholarship on on racism that uh, it's not something that people haven't thought about before and I feel like you know like after 2020 you know after the murder of George Floyd you get you get people wanting to respond and there are good intentions and 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 these institutions also you know they want to look good right I mean there's a performative dimension to that certainly they want to look like they're on the right side of history that they're doing something about it maybe because of morals maybe because they want to make money and stay both. in the game probably both you know they I think there, there can be both those things it's like I don't really even care about the intentions it's more like okay if you're but if you're really serious about this question of racism then then take a step back and 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 really try to try to learn about it that it's actually not it's not a simple matter it's not something that's that something you can just sort of rub off or, or, or take off like a blemish and I guess that for me is the challenge is like how do we get people to think more critically about what racism is and how it functions and and I feel like oftentimes when there's these attempts to rush in to sort of make changes and to to address you know the, the problem of racism on campus or something like this that it's not done very well, it's not done very thoughtfully, and it ends up silencing the deeper conversations around, okay, yeah, that we've been talking about. And so for me, that's the challenge. How do we get people in power to really step back and ask critical questions about about what racism is and maybe challenge their assumptions about what how you know what racism is all about. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, and I think that we can do that. One way we can do that is by really making that engagement like the center 
of the intellectual project of what is happening at a university, right? I think right now it still is not. And it's where people are sort of like addressing these issues are less so in in departments and in classrooms and more in marketing meetings and things like that, right? I was just thinking, you know, you're hearing this... Uh, <laughs> this uh, lawnmower go back and forth in the in the background and um and you know because the, it's sort of indicative of what the university is it is a it's a a place that's selling something and so you know for example what it looks like it's beauty it's aesthetic you know ple pleasantness is part of the package that it sells and ultimately it is the sort of place for extracting wealth and resources from the very people it's supposed to serve, right? And what if we could rethink the university as a place where um, resources are redistrib redistributed in a, in the other way, right? Like, or in hmm. various ways, right? That you, as a student, you don't just come for the knowledge, but a particular kind of knowledge that is going to allow you to be able to go out into the world and then like distribute that, those, that knowledge and that way of thinking and, and all of that to other people, right? But I mean, ultimately, I think that the university focuses on, and again, I'm not talking, I'm talking about universities in general, right? That they focus on the wrong things. It, obviously in a, in a capitalist society and when we were driven by thinking about markets and blah, 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 and accumulation of wealth, the idea of the university is that's where people go to learn how to get rich or to get the, the um, credential that they need to get rich. But what if we, what if it wasn't that? And what if it was the place where you went to learn how to dismantle structures of oppression you know and i can go on and on and on that wouldn't make money i suppose but that might be good <laughs> uh could i put that in the mission statement uh, <laughs> that, that last bit you said <laughs> or do you think that would not be proved <laughs> okay. well it, 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 like last time we talked about you know the need to uh the need for abolition to be about you know, both absence and presence, right? So it can be about dismantling and building, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just yeah. about dismantling, it's about, well, how do we think creatively and imaginatively in this unique kind of shared space where we're here together in a room, right? Yes. I mean, universities organize people in the right. sense that they're all showing up, right? And they're all here for extended periods of time. And, you know, how do we use that time and space to begin to imagine uh, how we can build some, build infrastructures of care rather than systems of death, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a, isn't that the most important aspect of a university is to bring people together in these various ways, right? Like there, any right now in the world that we're living in, in the sort of framework that we exist in, a responsible institution of higher learning right now should be thinking about, we need to accumulate as much money in the bank, in our endowment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if we're going to be here 25 years from now because of the way the, the sort of structure and the, and the way that higher education operates now. Um, but what if we sort of went the other way? What if they said, you know what, we're actually going to spend all our money and only focus on bringing people together in these spaces in order to allow them to figure out what it is that's important for them to be working on for their communities? Like, what if we did something like that, right? And obviously, like, I'm sort of, I'm sort of proposing the destruction of the of the modern university. But I, if I'm going to be honest, and Kanishki, you know this, we've had these conversations. I've been thinking about this for like 20 years. Like, what would I really want a university to look like? I'm happy to have a job. I'm happy to have to be able to live and to survive. And you know, in no means, by no means, am I naive about like where that comes from and all of that. But if there were any possible way to just go into rooms with people and like figure out like what is important to them and work towards that. I would much prefer to do that. 
Um, and that involves what you were talking about, right? Like delving into the past and thinking about what other people have thought about for centuries around this particular issue and lots of other issues, right? But maybe what it doesn't involve is playing baseball or climbing walls or rock walls or anything like that. And again, like this is wait, not. Wait, a... wait, wait. What's wrong with playing baseball? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with playing took, baseball. Yeah, you took like a uh, yeah, like a curveball there. I don't. But does took... does it does it belong in the university? <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Like, yeah. is that should that be well, one the of the business prime... school belong in the university? Is well, my big yeah. question. Yeah. Or you know, and, and how how do we think about you know some of these schools that generate lots of money that that you know within the university that the reason why people go sometimes to the university oftentimes to to major. In, in business to major in engineering and well, we got to ask critical questions about well what is the what are people doing after they leave the business school what kinds of businesses are they operating right what are they about how do how do we think about that right how do we think about racism in relation to that when we think about engineering like what kinds of things are people designing and building you know are, are, are we facilitating and empowering the systems of destruction or are we building infrastructures of care I think certainly we're, we're talking about, I mean, we're getting hopeful here a little bit about possibilities of a university, bringing people together, exchanging ideas. And the word that I keep coming back to thinking about is praxis, right? So we don't want to just, this is, can't just be ideas, right? I'm thinking a lot about land acknowledgement. And like, also we talked about decolonizing the syllabus. I remember there's this important article called Decolonization is Not an, a Metaphor by Tuck and Yang. And they talk about like, basically, yeah, you can decolonize, like that's become like this like leftist term, the syllabus, the academy, the whatever. But like, ultimately we want land back. Like we want material resources moved and redistributed. And I think that's why your question, Todd, about like, what if the university was actually a space where like resources could be redistributed? What if the university was a place of bringing people together and organizing and sharing ideas and learning, but not just ideas, like also like a praxis, like experimenting, trying action, finding out what people care about and then moving with it. So anyway, So that could involve playing baseball. It I guess, could. I, I, guess I do. I like <laughs> the idea of actually playing. I, play. I, I, I like what I'm hearing. I like what I'm hearing. So I think we should write up a mission statement <laughs> and uh, then deconstruct that mission statement <laughs> because ultimately this is what this is about, right? I mean, it's as, as, as all of you are saying that it's not just about destruction, it's about creation, right? And, and it's a, it's a enabling process and Change comes through that kind of organic process, and I think we, we just have to be mindful of the fact that I think Todd makes a really good point, is that we have um, just completely internalized what has been the received no, uh, logic of what a university should do. And maybe that's where we should begin, is, is what is the work of the university, and why should it cost so much, and all of these questions, even as we increase representation, even as we do all the things that need to be done, the deeper questions have to be addressed, I think. And it should come from, I think, also from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. I think too often it comes from the top down. And I think our students, et cetera, should be the ones generating a lot of these questions as well. Thanks, y'all, for listening to In the Belly of the Beast.